This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 364. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and I'm joined today by Master Chief Jacob Paulson. Master Chief of all things glorious and wonderful at ConcealedCarry.com. And your audio is not turned on, bro. <laughs> he had his okay. dogs. No, no, I'm unmuted. Sorry. I was <laughs> trying to keep the dog barking out of the show. Yeah. Way to blow the uh, intro of the podcast here, bro. Well, I, I had a good comeback, too. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's not even worth trying now. <laughs> oh, So, uh, today's episode, we are talking about reasons to get a CCW permit, even if you're in a state with constitutional carry. It's a timely topic as... It, Today is the is the day that the new law in Oklahoma goes into effect, a constitutional carry law, and is as is the case with with it. Any any time a state uh, passes constitutional carry and the law goes into effect, it seems like I always see the flurry of activity, Jacob, where people are like, you know, you see um, all types. You'll see people that are concerned, legitimately, like well legitimately in their minds right uh in that maybe they're not really gun people and they're like oh my goodness we're gonna have people carrying guns all over the place without permits right you have instructors that uh feel it's really important that people get training and they're kind of bothered by the idea of uh, you know how can these people get permits and carry or maybe not necessarily get permits because it's constitutional carry but how can these people be carrying guns and not have training Right, and of course, there's that whole thing of being an instructor, and it's nice when a state says you got to go to an instructor and get training before you can get a permit. Uh, you know, so you see kind of all this diff- this chatter that goes on online, and I think it's just a timely opportunity to talk about this topic as a kind of a whole. So we've got a bunch of ideas for you of why you should still get a permit even if you're in a constitutional carry state, and we'll talk a bunch about a bunch of other. Uh, uh, kind of issues surrounding that idea. So anyway, today's episode made possible by our online concealed carry course. This is an online video course. You watch some videos, you go through this, take a couple of quizzes, pass the test, and you can then use a certificate to apply for a Virginia non-resident permit. And the whole reason why this is important as a sponsor of the of today's episode is because some of you may be in states where it's difficult to get a permit and you want to be able to do so. Um, maybe that won't necessarily en- enable you to carry legally or lawfully in your own home state, but in the case that you travel out of state, or if you're looking for additional reciprocity, because that's always a possibility as well, the online concealed carry course just maybe the ticket for you, and it's reasonably priced on our website. Just go to concealedcarry.com forward slash online course. Yeah, there's really three you know p- potential people who I see who could really benefit from our online course. And so I'm just going to reiterate and also add to what you said. First, people who, to your point, live somewhere where they can't get their local permit. You live in Maryland, uh, New York City, Various counties in California. Yep, various counties in California, Hawaii. And uh, you want to get a concealed carry permit either because, you know, you want to say you have one or because you travel and you'd like to be able to carry concealed when you're not in your home state 
great. Go take our online class, watch some videos, mail the stuff in, get your Virginia non-resident permit. You're now good to go in 29 states. The second person I would see is someone who wants to expand reciprocity. You have your home permit uh, from your home state in Illinois or, you know, whatever it is, uh, Oregon, California, you know, whatever. But your reciprocity is relatively limited. And by getting the Virginia non-resident permit added uh, to your list of permits you hold, you could add five to 10 or 15 new states to your map that you can now travel to and carry concealed. And the third, and this is a little bit more of the controversial one, so maybe I'll get some hate mail, but you'll survive. You might live in a place where uh, there's a relatively high amount of effort and energy and money that has to be invested to go get your home state permit. Well, you might be able to just bypass and get the Virginia non-resident permit, and that might that might be good enough. That might be as good. Um, now, that, that list of states is probably about 15 to 20 states. That, that That's a viable option, but it's something to consider, and uh, it's, it's, it's worth checking out. And, and I, I, there are a large number of co- uh, companies out there that have an online concealed carry class like ours. But the average price is 65, and I've never found anyone who has it as inexpensive as we do. It's 39 bucks, and it's three and a half hours of really high-quality video content. I mean, Riley, you may not feel so, but I'm pretty sure it's our best online course. The instructor is amazing. Really, he is. He's phenomenal. World-class instruction. Yeah, (laughs) so it's uh, something to think about. Jacob Paulson. Yep, that's case. In case you didn't catch that drift. All righty. So, yeah, check it out. Concealedcarry.com forward slash online course. Also, today's episode brought to you by Pig Lube. And we love Pig Lube. Uh, That's what I run in all of my guns. So check out Pig Lube today. If you like to go pick up a a tube of that, I highly recommend it. It's available at concealedcarry.com forward slash Pig Lube. And actually, that'll take you right to a page with all of their various products, including their cleaning kits and cleaning products and the lube itself it's all it's all great stuff so check it out all righty so let's jump into today's topic uh and i know jacob you've got some notes and some things you want to cover uh i know this is a topic you're well versed in and again we've 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 talked about this you know here and there and i maybe we did a episode specific about it i don't remember uh we've done 364 of them yeah, I have a couple of places I want to start. I think that we need to talk about what states currently have constitutional carry. I yeah, think we also we, need to talk about a variance of how what constitutional carry is and means varies from one state that has it to another state that has it. Right. Yeah, no, actually, I had a question here from Tony. How many states are constitutional carry? So maybe you could kind of run down that since you, you brought I'll, that I'll up I'll name them off, Riley. How about you count? You ready? Yep. yep All right. right. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Missouri, New Hampshire, Oh, wait. Sorry. I take it back New Hampshire. Minus one. I was wrong about that one. <laughs> uh, let's see. Wait, wait. Hold on a sec. Oh, do we need My to start over? Wrong. Start over. New <laughs> Hampshire was. I don't know why. I, 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 like, I saw I got my lines mixed up here. Okay, here we yeah, go. Start yeah, yeah. It all sounded good to me. They were all true, but then first I had a like double take where I was like, "Wait, was I wrong about New Hampshire?" It's like, no, no, New Hampshire's good. And I'm trying to do this in alphabetical order, and usually I do it in my mind geographically from west coast to east coast. Sure, here sure, we go. sure. In alphabetical order. Here we go. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, New Hampshire, Oklahoma. Now effective today, South Dakota, Vermont, and West Virginia. Okay, so I counted eleven. All right. Um, the other one would be Wyoming. We should count Wyoming, though it's a little bit unique. Uh, we could also add North Dakota, and we could also add Mississippi. Okay. We could That'd also add. More. We could Four also more. add Idaho. 
Right. Yeah. 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 They're all those. All those. I think I don't know how many more I just added, but they're all slightly. That, that's fourteen different. total. Okay, so fourteen total. Not or all of them are the same. Fifteen. Excuse me, because I had Could eleven. Counter. We added four. So fifteen. Yeah, we had we added Idaho, Mississippi, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah, and so. Uh, all right. Now you mentioned that there's some that uh, are kind of you know that, that like maybe there's some weird circumstances. Can you kind of highlight that just real quick so people understand why there's maybe that little bit of a I don't know. Do we yeah. call it a gray area? Yeah. Well, here's here's the biggest thing. If you're gonna if you if you're counting on constitutional care, the the biggest thing that's worth noting or researching or being aware of is does that state's constitutional carry extend to non-residents? Yep. So for example, Idaho would be a good example of that. So in Idaho, uh, if you're a resident of Idaho, you have constitutional carry. But if you are a visitor, if I'm going, if I go visit Idaho today, then even though it's a constitutional carry state, I must have a permit to carry concealed in Idaho because I'm not an Idaho resident. And so there's just some weird things like that. Mississippi is also a weird one where uh, they have constitutional carry, but there's exceptions. As of 2016, the law basically says that no license is required to carry open or concealed at the age of 18 plus in a purse, handbag, satchel, similar bag, briefcase, or fully enclosed case, belt and shoulder holster, and sheath. So in other words, constitutional carry for most things, but not an ankle holster. Like if you wanted to carry an ankle holster, a shoulder holster, that would require a permit. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. so, so there's just some weird things like that. Uh, that, that you just kind of got to be watch out. Age is another one. A lot of people, you might come from New Hampshire and in New Hampshire, constitutional carry applies to everybody 18 plus, but you travel to Oklahoma, which constitutional carry went into effect there today. And you have to be 21 plus unless you're in the military. Then if you're 18, 19 or 20 constitutional carry applies. So, so there's just, you know, those, there's some of those variances that you just need to be aware of and, and be, you know, be clear on. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's a pretty good summary. Now you mentioned too, and I forgot already. You had, you'd mentioned that there was a couple things you wanted to kind of start with, and one of them was identifying states with constitutional carry. And now we've kind of talked about some of the special cases too, with some of those. There was something else though you wanted to highlight. Well, that was it. I think I think you just need to understand that just knowing that the state has constitutional carry, yes, no, is not sufficient enough for you to just start strap on a gun and walk around. I think you need to know: does it apply to residents and non-residents? At what age is it effective? Are there any restrictions? I need to be aware of. And so we, we talked a little bit about the age thing. We talked a little bit about resident versus non-resident. Um, but there's also going to be other restrictions that vary by state. And that's going to kind of be part of this conversation of why you should get a permit. Uh, but but those are things that you know you just need to... We mentioned the weird one from Mississippi about how you know a constitutional carry uh, on my hip, fine. Constitutional carry on the ankle, need a permit. You know, But there's going to be other weird things like Maine is an interesting one in Maine. Uh, and I think Arizona would also fall in this category. Constitutional carry doesn't apply in a national park monument or memorial. So, you know, you need, if you want to carry concealed in your national park or state park, you need to get a, you need to get a permit. So there's just, you know, there's going to be little yep. things like that that vary from, from state to state. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. So again, this was sort of brought up because of Oklahoma now being the latest state to join this list of constitutional carry states. And so kind of let me just highlight some of the comments that I've seen, uh, you know, surrounding this. So the other day I was in, uh, I think it was some kind of instructor group on Facebook and uh, some instructors were kind of talking about, 
you know, almost like lamenting the fact like, oh my goodness, these people are going to go and, you know, be just caring and not have any training, you know? Uh, and uh, so c- kind of some interesting uh, conversation about that. And I've seen that before. In fact, Jacob, you and I, we both know a particular instructor who was very sensitive about this issue when his home state went to or, be, you know, added constitutional carry. Um, now, by the way, most states that go to constitutional carry, uh, they 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 don't normally replace, you know, a permitting process with constitutional carry. Uh, and so that's also kind of important to recognize. Right. There's only one state that has no permitting process. Right. Which is tricky, right? Because then those state residents don't really have an opportunity or a vehicle uh, whereby they can uh, have reciprocity with other states. Right. No, they have to get a non-resident permit from elsewhere. That's Vermont. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, you know, that'd be another example of, uh, you know, and of course, Vermont would be included in states where it's difficult or impossible, actually, in in Vermont's case, to get a permit because a state permit just doesn't exist. And so that uh, non-resident permit available from a state like Virginia, which Virginia is the is, is kind of the common example it's used because it's relatively easy to obtain. It's right. it's easy to obtain and the cost is low and the reciprocity is good, right? There's lots of good non-resident yeah. permits, the Florida non-resident permit, the Utah non-resident permit, the Arizona non-resident permit. All three of those are also very popular and yep. some of them are less expensive than Virginia in terms of the application fee itself. But all three of those do require an in-person class, right. whereas Virginia does not. You can do that one online. Like such as in the case, in, if you wanted to get a Utah non-resident permit, you actually, you can't just take any class. You actually have to take a class that's that where the Utah curriculum is being taught by a Utah certified instructor, which it's a remarkable thing that Utah has quite a, do I call it a business going on where they certify instructors all over the country. Like people travel into Salt Lake city, Utah to, uh, to, to get certified as Utah instructors every three years. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Exactly. You and I have have allowed ours to lapse because it's just not something that, I mean, not that, relevant anymore at one time i think the difference in reciprocity between like a colorado permit resident permit and getting a utah non-resident permit is you added like five states or something and now it's like two so it's kind of like eh, not as much and, interest and no one that. cares about one of them yeah and the other one you can get with an arizona permit which is you know doesn't require any extra class so yeah, yeah we, you and i just yeah there's no reason for you to me to be teaching utah classes anymore but but yeah i, I think the the point is you know with, yep. with constitutional carry I, I mean, you just kind of opened up the can, right? The first major reason. But before we do that, I think what you were you were trying to summarize this idea of required training. I, episode 50 of our podcast is where you and I really battled out the question of should training be required? But I, I would just leave, I guess, my Jacob two cents on this one before we dive into why we think you should go get a permit, even if you don't need one to carry concealed, is that while training training should not be required by law, uh, we don't think the government should regulate that, Riley and I. And that's our company's position as well. And and I think the easiest thing I would do to point at evidence of that is we just named 14 or 15 states that have constitutional carry. We could name an additional eight or nine that while they don't have constitutional carry, they don't require any training to get their permit. You know, Indiana, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, Wyoming. Uh, yeah, those are those are ones that come right. to my head really right. quickly. And and I mean, and Pennsylvania, Indiana, you know, th- those states have tons of permit holders. So you know, we're talking about probably close to right around twenty states 
where either no tr- no permit is required to carry or no training is required to get the permit. And there's zero data, arbitrary or just like legitimate true research to suggest that gun owners in those states are any less able to defend themselves properly than gun owners in states that do have to get training. So yeah, training is right. good. You should get it. But both for constitutional reasons and for all practical, you know, core observatory reasons, I, I just don't think training should be required. Right. Training is important. Yes, we, we have hashed that out again and again. And I, I think most of our listeners understand that fact. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think we laid it out pretty clearly in episode 50 of the podcast. Uh, and we've reiterated it a number of times, right? That while training is the thing that a responsible person does and someone that's serious about carrying a gun, because it is a serious thing. And both in terms of safety and safety for others, but it's also serious because the more training you get, the higher level of skill you will achieve, the better prepared you'll be for dealing with. I mean, it's the whole reason you carry a gun is likely for a personal defense type reason. And those situations are oftentimes difficult, scary situations. I was actually just watching a, a video from John Korea uh, this morning, and I think it was out of South Africa, and it was a, a – gentleman that hops out of a car and immediately has a gun in his hand. Like he's clearly coming after this particular guy. And I don't know who the guy is, but uh, he's just like standing in his driveway or talking to a friend or a neighbor or something. And the dude just comes right out of the car. He just stops in front, jumps out, starts coming at him. He's got a gun in his hand. This guy has to respond like that. I mean, instantaneously. And he's able to do so. Uh, his, I don't know what kind of training he has or his background, but I'll tell you, Jacob, from you and I, we know having, you know, trained a a number of people and having, you know, people come through our guardian pistol curriculum courses. Uh, most people without some measure of formal training don't achieve, uh, for instance, a draw to first shot, uh, that's that, you know, that's really all that fast. Right. Uh, I mean, a lot of times we see students that, you know, this is the first time they've ever measured that. And they're in the sometimes two, two and a half second range. Now, under two seconds is pretty good for most people. But my point is, is that training is important for a variety of reasons. Right. And most of the time when people start talking about constitutional carry as it relates to the now lack of a standard of training, they're concerned, I think, from like a safety side of things. Um, but I want to point out that, you know, we, there's a lot of reasons we should get training and a responsible person will do that. So, um, I have no idea where I was going, but it was the all short good. Of, yeah. The short of it is like, go, go listen to episode 50. <laughs> if you want to hear me and Riley really rant about all the various reasons why training shouldn't be required by the government. Like we, right. we got plenty of feelings about that and reasons why we think that's a, a justified position. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Tony's clearly seen that video. The the guy in board short, shorts and flip-flops went from barbecue dad to GI Joe at 0.3 seconds. I mean, he really had to switch it on just like that. It was it was pretty pretty wild. Okay, so, uh Jacob, let's start talking about some of the reasons for obtaining a permit even though you may be in a state with constitutional carry. So, yeah, so one we already really hinted at, and it's the obvious and big one, and that is the concept of reciprocity, right? Mm-hmm. If I live in Oklahoma and now I have constitutional carry and I'm sweet, I'm carrying concealed in Oklahoma, life is good. If I ever cross the state lines, if I ever travel at all, that really limits me. I now can carry in not very many other states, about 10, you know, 10 other states that have constitutional carry that 
extend that to non-residents. So I'm very limited. Whereas getting that Oklahoma concealed carry permit probably gives me reciprocity in more like 25 to 35 states. I don't I don't know off the top of my head, but uh, my guess is it's got you know pretty decent reciprocity. So that's that's the big obvious one that most people cite most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, reciprocity is is huge. Uh, I I think. I mean, well, I mean, some people probably actually don't travel as much as what maybe you or I do, uh, but y- you also have individuals that might live kind of close to the border of a couple, you know, their state or a couple of states. Uh, I mean, like think about our our friend Rob Beckman, instructor out in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's right there where you have all within fifteen minutes to the south, Kentucky, to the west, Ohio. Mm-hmm or excuse me, Indiana, and then he lives right there in Ohio. You know, like, you could just all in a single day find yourself in three different states. And if you're relying on constitutional carry, well, you know, you could be in violation of laws as you travel to those various states if you didn't have a permit in place, right, with reciprocity. So, which all those states generally have reciprocity with one another because uh, they're all fairly favorable to concealed carry. But so that would, yes, that's, that's, that is a huge, 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 huge one, um, at least for me. I mean, in the last couple of years, Jacob, you and I, as we've traveled to various shows and events and things, uh, I think I've been to like dang near 40 states in the last few years, some of which, you know, I don't have reciprocity with, obviously, and couldn't carry in, uh, you know, at least on my person or outside of a vehicle. Uh, My favorite, not really, is California. I mean, it's a great place. It's a cool state. Just really don't care for uh, the fact that every time I go there, it's like, dang, can't take my gun or can't carry my gun, right? But they do have favorable knife laws, so there's that at least. So um, reciprocity. All right, so here's another another uh, reason, uh, and, and this is uh, one that is not talked about that often, actually, surprisingly to me. I think partly because it's not on a lot of people's radars. I also don't think it's something that really is prosecuted, you know, like, so, and what I'm referring to is the Gun-Free School Zone Act, right? So, basically, if you read the laws carefully, I mean, the Gun-Free Zones, Gun-Free School Zone Act uh, has a provision that you cannot be within, is it a thousand feet, Jacob? Yeah, of school property. A thousand feet of a school, of a public school, if with a gun, like you, you can't, you can't do it. Like if you re, if you take the verbiage literally, which I would, because <laughs> I think it reads. If you read it, it's pretty clear. Maybe you have it handy and you can quote it for us, Jacob. I'll, but I'll pull it up. But basically, like you, you, sh- you shouldn't even, according to the way that reads, you shouldn't even be able to have a, a gun with you in your car within a thousand feet of a school. Right, yeah. If you drive down the road in front of the school and there's a firearm with you, then if the firearm is loaded and on your person, then you've broken that federal law. I emphasize federal because that means it's a felony, folks. Yep. The law says it shall be unlawful for any individual knowingly to possess a firearm that has been moved in or that otherwise affects interstate or foreign commerce at a place that the individual knows or has reasonable cause to believe is a school zone. And a school zone, right out of the federal law, is a in or on the grounds of a public parochial. How do you even say that? Parochial. Well, there you go. Parochial. Parochial. 
what you said, or private <laughs> school, or within a distance of a thousand feet from the grounds of a public peri- parochial or private school. So yes, a thousand feet of a public school, you can't again. There are exceptions and we could cover that. Um, but the main exception, the relevant exception is if you've been permitted by the state to do so, to have a gun. Right. Yep. And you actually have to watch that a little bit because in some states, it basically says if you have a permit, you're good. And in other states, you need to have that state's permit to be okay. Yeah. I mean, the way the federal law reads, it says if the individual possessing the firearm is licensed to do so by the state, which the school zone is located or a political subdivision of the state or the law of the state of the political subdivision requires that before blah, 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 blah. Basically, the states issued you a permit. And in order to obtain that permit, you had to have a background check. That's the real like short of it. Now, there, and there are other exceptions, like maybe you your house is within a thousand feet of the school, then great. You can have your gun in your house. And and if you, you know, before you get into the school zone, if before, you know, if you stop your car, unload the gun and uh, you put it in a locked container, unload it and then drive through the school zone, that's fine too, right? But no one wants that. That, that seems ridiculous. I mean, you know how hard it would be to, you know, cruise around in Oklahoma with your new awesome constitutional carry rights and never be within a thousand feet of a school. <laughs> that seems really unlikely. Now uh, there's also a practical reality of, yeah, but how likely am I to get busted just for driving past a school with, well, you know, I don't know how likely you are to get busted, but if you do get busted, you're talking about a felony charge. It's, it's possible. Right. And again, that's a federal law. And so typically you don't see city and count, county cops getting involved with enforcing federal law uh it's just not even in their purview a lot of time or they're not even you know likely even thinking about that so uh you know they'd have to almost refer you to i mean like the point is it's not something that i've really heard about being enforced that much in fact i can't even think of right now at least off the top of my head of a documented case i'm sure it's happened but uh but the point is is that in most situations, if you have a permit, you're probably good to go. All right. So that's another big reason why to have a permit, even if you are in a constitutional carry carry state, because that way you can, like for me, it's it, like you're just kind of talking about, and there's some online, you know, some chatter here in the Facebook group or a page of uh, people kind of joking about like small towns and stuff where you probably can't even get beyond a thousand feet of a school. Like where where I live. There are schools everywhere. I, it would be interesting one one day to go like go on Google Maps and identify all the schools and then draw thousand foot uh, perimeters around them <laughs> and yeah. just see like ooh I, I could drive you know through here and here and here to avoid all this uh, or maybe it's impossible I don't know it's actually probably well as I, yeah <laughs> bear in mind it includes private schools. You know, there could be schools in your neighborhood you don't even know about that are licensed with the state that are like a daycare or something, you know, like, so, you know, it, it, you know, a church, you know, uh, you start most, how many of your churches in, in your city also have a school in them? Okay. That counts, you know, cause all private schools qualify. Yep. Uh, so I guess I didn't realize it extended to private schools. Says it right in the law. Yeah. I guess I wasn't listening when you read it. So. Um, all right. That's another good reason then. You were too busy helping me pronounce that word. Parochial. That one. <laughs> so that's a good reason. Yep. So here's here's the next one for me. That would be restaurants that serve alcohol. This is not going to be true in every constitutional care state. And I don't know about Oklahoma that went into effect today. That's when I'd have to research. But I know, for example, in Arizona, uh, if, if, if you're acting under the, the limits of constitutional carry only, if you don't have a permit, you may not enter an establishment that serves alcohol. You may not, 
But if you have your permit, if you have an Arizona permit or an other honored permit in Arizona, then you may enter an establishment that serves alcohol. You still can't you know, drink. They have a law against that. And, and obviously that individual, any individual establishment could prohibit it based on their own private property restrictions. But without a permit, if you're, if you're carrying only under your constitutional carry limitations in Arizona, you cannot enter any establishment that serves alcohol. Uh, and I, I would assume that some other constitutional carry states may have similar uh, things in place like that. So that's, that's something to be aware of. Yeah. Yep, that is uh, for sure. So that's another good one. Uh, moving right along. Uh, what about national parks, Jacob? National parks, yep. national monuments? Yeah, how, how does that play into things here? Because yep, I mentioned that one earlier. And uh, I, I, again, this is one where I don't know for all of these, you know, 15 or 14, however many states we identified. But I do know that, for example, in Maine, and I know this is true in Arizona as well, that within constitutional carry, you can't carry into a national park, monument, or memorial, or a state park. So both Arizona and Maine, and it could be some of these other states have similar uh, restrictions. Uh, with the limits of constitutional carry, you may not bring your firearm into a state park or a national park monument or memorial. You would need a permit to do that. So that would be another good reason. You know, if you're a person who who travels a lot and likes to go on long road trips or likes to go see beautiful natural things, then that's probably going to be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting distracted because I'm like typing comments on Facebook and I expect you to be longer winded than, you know, like you normally are. So, uh, <laughs> Between the two of us, for you to accuse me of being long-winded is ridiculous. <laughs> um, can I just address something real quick? Because we have some comments from uh, someone on uh, YouTube. This is going to completely derail us, but I have to like I'm getting distracted too much by this issue because it 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 is something that comes up every time with this conversation is had, and it's the crowd that says. The Constitution, the Second Amendment, is my permit. This is a constitutional right, and I don't need a permit to carry my gun however I want, wherever I want, whenever I want, in whatever state uh, yeah. I want. Are right? you going to let me get on my soapbox, or are you going to take this one? Well, I'm going to get things off my chest first, and then you can do your thing. All right. So, uh, so pro-freedom or whoever it is that's coming on YouTube, appreciate you for watching, by the way, today. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, at concealedcarry.com, the Concealed Carry Podcast, uh, I absolutely believe in the Constitution. I believe in the Second Amendment. I believe in the verbiage that says, shall not be infringed, very much so. And I will work I will work very diligently to continue to push things in a direction where we, we continually get closer and closer and closer to how I think the Second Amendment truly reads. But here's the problem. And if you go back into the 1800s, you and, and you look at case law from the Supreme Court and other federal court, but especially from the Supreme Court, there was there was a number of cases way back. We're going back a long ways. There was a time in this country where concealed carry was an ugly, dirty, nasty thing. Nobody wanted it, uh, and the courts absolutely did not support it. All right, and. You probably had some people back then saying, shall not be infringed. But generally speaking, it was publicly accepted that carrying of a concealed firearm was something that only criminals did, right? And now open carry may very well have been, 
you know, the, the, the norm and the standard and kind of what people did. So probably your, your normal average law abiding folk carried a gun openly, right? Six shooters on the hip or whatever. And, uh, you know, it was like I said, only a criminal that would carry something concealed because, well, geez, it just sounds, you know, scary and dirty and nasty or whatever. Right. And so basically what, what we are up against today is trying to turn back the tide of all of these various laws, laws that were passed at the state and federal level, but especially more state levels, and court rulings going way back uh, to, you know, this is, this is stuff that's just not going to go away overnight, right? And uh, we, we, we need a Supreme Court today that can, like, rule definitively on some of these issues. So if you truly, here's the thing. If you truly believe in the Constitution, everybody harps on the Constitution, Constitution, Constitution. The Constitution, in fact, let me just quote uh, what Pro Freedom wrote here. He said, uh, he, he was actually quoting from, I think from, yeah, from so from the U.S. Constitution, uh, he, he's, he, he, he shared this on YouTube. The Constitution, the laws of the United States, uh, I'm going to skip some of this, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. Basically suggesting that the Second Amendment says shall not be infringed, and we're bound by that, and all these other laws that, that exist are unconstitutional. But here's the problem. If you truly believe in the Constitution, and I do, and I, I and you say you do, and I believe you do, but we have a Constitution that lays out how our system of government works, and we have in there a system that explains how the Supreme Court, courts in general, but especially the high court of the land, can interpret things in the Constitution and can rule on laws that are passed by the exec- by the legislative branch, enforced by the executive branch, but they're interpreted and clarified by the judicial branch. And we can't just ignore that fact, right? And so you may disagree with how the Supreme Court rules on something, or you may disagree on the fact that the Supreme Court refuses to issue a ruling on a particular matter. But as long as we have a law that stands in place and has not yet been overturned by some, some, some sort of court ruling, then that is the law of the land. All right. So while I personally believe that maybe that law may be incorrect and I can work through the pr- appropriate channels to try to get that law changed, but I believe in being law-abiding, all right? And so I'm not one of those that will stand here and say the Second Amendment is my permit, mean, implying that I'm just going to do whatever I want to do anyway. Because I'll tell you what, pro-freedom will, I, you know, according to what he says anyway, which is fine, good for you. I hope that you, sir or, or, or ma'am, you, I hope that you are the example for all the rest of us and that a case law is made about you. I hope you're the individual who gets to try that out for all the rest of us, and you get to pay the expense and go through all the hassle and everything to win that case for us and get the Second Amendment and, and constitutional carry back to where it should should have been. Be my guest. I'm not going to be that that uh, pawn uh, because I got five kids to raise and a wife to take care of, and I'm concerned about that. And in the meanwhile, I'm going to be law-abiding. All right, because I don't have I, I I can't deal with being 
the leader that's going to go and push the envelope someplace and then try to, and by the way, that is a big, big, big journey because you'll be charged with something. You'll be in jail. You'll have to win a criminal trial first. And then you're going to have to appeal and, and try to get that all the way up through all the various levels, you know, through appeals courts, through state courts, through federal courts, through the, to the U S Supreme court. That does not sound like something that I am, uh, able to take on at this time of my life. Uh, so let's see. It should not become law in the first place when politicians take an oath to uphold the Constitution. I don't disagree with you, pro-freedom. I don't disagree with you. Politicians pass laws all the time that are questionable and arguable, arguably not constitutional. But we have a system in place, and the Constitution is what set that system in place in the first place. Right? That... Yes, we may think those laws that those politicians pass are unconstitutional, but we then have to get that through the courts to get that overturned. That's how it works. Or we elect people that will turn it back. That's how it works. That's the Constitution. Thank you. I'm off my soapbox now. Yeah, uh, I, I don't dare you know derail us too much more. So I'll just say that uh, I, I, I agree with what you said, that we have to, we can't cherry pick the parts of the constitution we'd like we take it all and taking it all means that we have to accept that uh, ultimately it's up for interpretation by the courts by the court system by the judicial branch of our government right and we are allowed to interpret it how we want and say this is how i feel that it, it should be interpreted or this is what i think it means we're allowed to do that and we're allowed to shout from the rooftop and say this is what i think it should mean Right. And, and, and we're on board 100 percent with with the reality of, of what Mr. Pro Freedom is saying it should mean. Right. I'm, yeah. Right there with you. And so that's that's our that's our First Amendment right to say what we think it should mean or, or to say how we interpret it uh, for ourselves. But ultimately, you know, what what is legal and what is not legal is up to the courts to decide. And, and you know, we get to go fight that battle as well and, and push. And, and we've had some good victories, I might add, you know, the Heller decisions, the McDonald decision. And the Supreme Court's about to hear another one uh, that, you know, here in any, any time now uh, out of New York City. The New York, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be v- probably very good. And we've had some federal district decisions, the Hawaii decision last year out of uh, the Ninth District Court, the Illinois decision uh, back in 2011. So we've had some good things happen, but ultimately uh, it, it is good for all, all of us to know what we think it should mean. And it's good for us to shout from the rooftop what we think it should mean. But for us to say that because I believe in the Constitution, I'm going to go break the law to me is a little hypocritical. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what this individual is saying. I'm saying that broadly speaking, when I hear people say, well, I think the Constitution should mean X, therefore I'm going to go ignore the law, it's like, what? Excuse me? Like you, on, out of one side of your mouth, you're saying you want to fall, you know, you believe in, in the law, you believe in the government that was set up. On the other side of your mouth, you're saying because you don't agree with the interpretation that's been passed or the law that's been passed by elected individuals, you therefore choose to disobey it is, is a complete hypocritical move. I agree. Now, should we, I mean, you certainly have the right, by the way, to disobey, disobey what you view to be an unconstitutional law. Absolutely. And that's, that's a right. And that perhaps opens the door for you to then go fight a case, right? But that's the way it's going to go. You know, it's always going to end up, unless we take away the law of the land, unless we go to a lawless, 
uh, tribal government, you know, the constitution goes away, uh, then the system that's in place there is to go through the courts. And I'll add that if, if the day comes that we think that the government needs to be overthrown, in that day, then yes, let's. we won't talk out of both sides of our mouths, right? We, we would talk out of one side of our mouth, which is I refuse to, to follow this government because I no longer believe this should be the government. And that would be an acceptable position if that's how you feel. Uh, and, and and to your point, Riley, it's also acceptable to 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 break the law if you're willing to accept the consequences of that decision. Uh, but you should do it knowingly, aware that that is in fact a law you're breaking. And and we have endless examples of wonderful, amazing leaders in the history of our country that have actively broken the law in order to uh, generate you know public to change public opinion or to create outcry or to do what was necessary in order to get that law changed. And so that's an acceptable 100% bold and okay decision to make. But I think that we have to do it under the understanding that I am breaking the law and not an understanding of, well, this is what I think the law means. Therefore it is the law. Yeah. All right. And by the way, just because we are a business, uh, we're not in the business of telling people to break the law. Probably not. Correct. That's probably not the best business practice. Okay. So realize the platform that we are on and we're always going to, you know, as a business, we're going to stand here and say, it's a good idea to follow the law. Now you want to do you, you do you. And I, I, you know, I might even send you five bucks as you wait, you know, trial or whatever. (laughs) Sure. sure. Hit me up. Uh, Anyway. Um, Okay. So let's get back to, uh, yeah, I, I know we, we deviated, but I felt like we needed to get that out there. Jacob, you had a couple other things here in your notes. Uh, some some other things that are, are interesting. Actually, I want to highlight this because this was a benefit that I had when I lived in the grand state of Idaho. I had a concealed carry permit in Idaho before I moved here to Colorado. And in Idaho, as per the law there, when I went to a gun dealer and wanted to purchase a firearm, it was like lickety split. I mean, it literally was like, okay, here's the form, fill out the form. And I would pull out my, you know, they always ask for ID anyway. I'd pull out my driver's license and I'd pull out my permit and they wouldn't even have to run a background check because that permit was essentially the background check. And that was cool because you just pull out your identification, sign the form, paid money, and you walked right out the door with a gun. Pretty dang awesome. So that is definitely uh, another nice little benefit. Now, that that doesn't apply in all states. I I don't even know what states specifically have that kind of uh, thing in place, but I think it's pretty cool. I also think it's reasonable uh, to have a law like that. And uh, so, yeah, that's a a bonus of having a permit. Yep. Uh, Ditto to that. Uh, If it can save you time and money when when purchasing a firearm, then Mm -hmm. bonus. I know that that is also the case in Arizona. Um, I'm not sure about any of our other constitutional carry states and, and whether or not that does or doesn't save you time and money, but uh, yep. Yep. Good stuff. What else? Easier for law enforcement to identify you? What's your take on this one, Jacob? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm just imagining your average concealed carry traffic stop. You know, I get pulled over and I'm in Oklahoma or I'm in wherever, you know, constitutional carry state and officer asks if I'm armed. Yes, I am. Oh, are, do you have a permit? No, I don't. Uh, okay, well, you know, I'm 
we're in the state that's constitutional carry. I guess I just got to verify that you're 18 plus and that you've never been arrested of any felt, you know, never been charged with any felonies. But the, you know, I think that there's, you know, there, there's a little bit more work the officer has to go through. But there's also a certain degree of, con- you know, it's, I think it's a different environment. I think it's a different degree of confidence than a situation where the officer uh, pulls over oh, your arm. Do you have a permit? And you say yes. And and what you've effectively communicated is, officer, I've decided it's worth my time and money, even though I don't have to, to to go and get some education training and pass a federal and state background check in order to get this piece of plastic that I can now hand to you. I think that changes the environment that the officer feels that they're in, and it changes uh, kind of that the situation. You know, it, it they they. That whereas before, with no permit, they could be dealing with anybody. It could be a complete criminal. But with permit, we know this person not only passed a background check, but they, without any re- legal requirements to do so, spent their time and money to get training and education. And that just changes things. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's another uh, great point. Uh, I, I, my, my personal experience has been, now this is not a guarantee that every law enforcement interaction will go like this. There are certainly law enforcement officers out there that are, you know, not top tier as far as some of their uh, human interpersonal relations and skills. Or training Uh, or policies or procedures. (laughs) Right, right, right. But uh, in my experience where I've had to identify because of carrying a gun concealed or whatever, uh, that has almost always gone very smoothly, you know, that, hey, here's my permit, and, you know, right off the bat, and I'll tell you, you know, I've done some work as a law enforcement officer, uh, been involved in some, you know, stops or interactions with uh, various folks uh, not too long ago, not too, yeah, not too long ago, uh, I was involved in a DUI arrest, and, uh, you know, so, you know, you're always interacting with these people, and you're, like, trying to understand, okay, who is this person, where'd they come from? You know, what's their intent? Uh, are they hiding something from me? Like, that's what's going through a law enforcement officer's mind all the time. Like, they're concerned about their personal safety. They're concerned about, you know, if, if any other additional laws have been or are being broken in addition to whatever reason it is that they've, you know, just stopped you. And so they're trying to figure out who you are and if you're a potential threat or not. Right, because that that changes the whole you know the way the entire interaction goes. I mean, in that DUI arrest I was involved in, uh, I remember one of the individuals had a very large, like six seven inch you know uh, like a Bowie Bowie knife, uh, you know fixed blade big old knife within reach you know and and this was kind of a I won't go into the details of, of, of the situation but you know it's one of those things where. <laughs> you're just trying to make sure that you're protected as you're interacting with this person. And it's always, you know, a, a, a difficult situation when they know they're already in hot water. Right. And so uh, having that permit in place for me ha- would reassure me, this is not your typical lawbreaker that you're dealing with. I mean, people make mistakes, right? But Hey, they have a permit. They've been FBI background checked. Uh, they're probably not, you know, not somebody I really need to be as concerned about. So anyway, I think there's huge value in that. Yep. Uh, Jacob, this is an interesting one that you also have some personal input on this because uh, you've been contacted about some some situations or cases. But what do you mean when you, you typed here, your attorney will thank you? Hmm. <laughs> so I inherently believe 
that if you're ever in a a prosecution situation where you're you've been charged with some sort of crime and that crime uh you know all, in fact we could i could generally say this would apply to any crime even if you don't if, even if it's not related to a firearm but just for the sake of of argument let's say it's related to a firearm you know aggravated assault with a deadly weapon or felony menacing or murder one you know whatever it is that you've been charged with uh and you know the gun is the gun is present and and part of it it's going to make it a lot more difficult for the prosecutor to get up there and shape a narrative and and create uh you know a, a case for you being reckless and negligent and a bad person if you happen to go take a class pass a background check and get a permit so i think i think it's just two very different narratives in a courtroom uh, one where if i'm carrying under the constitutional authority of the law that it's, you know, a prosecutor is going to be able to talk about how, you know, I could have taken a class. I didn't, I've never, you know, I didn't take a class. I, I didn't have to get a background check, uh, just walking around with this gun, uh, you know, willy nilly. And yeah, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. You can, you can say, you know, you have your opportunity to defend yourself, right? You, it's not like you, you have to take that lane down, but it's an entirely different narrative than a situation where I, I took a class and I paid my money to get the class, I paid my money to get a permit, and I, I passed a state and federal background check that included being fingerprinted, and I didn't have to. <laughs> I didn't have to, but I chose to. That creates an entirely different narrative in that in that circumstance, especially if we're talking about just purely talking about recklessness or negligence. It's like, no, I was very proactive at obtaining training and spending money and going through a background check. Now, <clears throat> I said it arguably could apply to any crime, any charge, even if it's not firearm related. I suppose that's, I, I suppose that's arguably true, right? I mean, my attorney could get up and say, see, my client Jacob Paulson here is such a good person and his evidence of him just being a good person. I'm happy to show a several different you know, examples of things. And one of those is that he spent money and got training and got this consult carry permit, even though he didn't have to. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that that could be used as a, as a character statement, but, but definitely if you're involved in a, in a charge, in, in a prosecution where where it's a firearm related charge, I definitely think I would much rather be, you know, my attorney is going to be very glad I took a class and applied for and got that permit. Yeah, you were actually contacted once, maybe more than once. I remember one particular one uh, as part of uh, uh, an individual's defense. Uh, right, that, that they were charged with something. I don't remember what, but they had been through a permit or through a class with you, gotten their permit. And can you maybe, is there anything there that you can kind of share that might maybe has some relation to what you just explained? Yeah, I'm not sure which one you're thinking of. Um, but so there's it, been more than one. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, yeah, so definitely. But but I, I definitely could say this. Certainly uh, a, def a defense, whether it's a public defender that's been assigned to somebody, I've been contacted as an expert witness by public defenders before, or if it's a, it's a paid you know, defense attorney, uh, they're anxious to put someone on the stand that can say, um, you know, the, the defendant in this, in this room who's been charged with this crime took a class either from me, and this is what I taught them, or they took a class and as an expert in this industry, in their class, I can tell you they probably were, were taught X, Y, and Z. These, these are the best practices of what we teach people, either because we're required to by the state or because that's just what instructors do. That's happened several times. And, the, and so the, uh, I, I know from experience that defense attorneys see it as a valuable asset to be able to show that their client, the defendant, acquired this training and that training included X, Y, and Z things. They see that as valuable versus not being able to say that, right? 
right. and they may not be concerned about a prosecutor getting up and saying, oh, this person's never had any clay training and just carrying around a gun. They may or may not think that the, the, the that arguments can be made, but regardless, they think that it is, it is a, a help to their case. It is a support to their na- narrative to show that their client did obtain some training and that training covered X, Y, and Z topics. Mm. Yep. Yep. Good stuff. I think that's uh, good, good for people to know, at least be considering. So again, today we're talking about uh, reasons to obtain a concealed carry permit, even if you don't necessarily have to because of a state law, a constitutional carry law, that sort of thing. And so I think hopefully we've given some people some, some stuff to think about. Maybe they're well, sitting on the fence as far me- as, Oh, we, should, we should we should we co- should we should cover the counter argument. Are there reasons why a person would not get a concealed carry permit if they don't have to? If they live in one of these constitutional carry states, and I think that there are. And so I th- it's worth mentioning some of the potential counter arguments. Though I personally don't feel that they outweigh the pros of obtaining a permit. Uh, but but I think a couple things come to mind. The one which would be very obvious is cost. Right. Uh, you know you have to you have to take time out of your schedule. You have to spend money. Um, but another one that I hear often from people is they just don't want to be on the grid. Oh, you know, I, I've bought all my guns used, uh, so I don't, there's no record of any of my guns. And if I go get a permit now, now the, that evil government's going to know that I'm a gunned guy. And mm-hmm. uh, sure, there's, there's a, some degree of validity to that. I mean, we could argue how big of a problem that is. Uh, but but there's definitely some validity validity to the fact that when you get a permit, you are going to be on in some sort of government system, whether that's a, something maintained at a county level or at a state level, that is going to say this guy obtained a permit. It's it's not going to you know less well. There are some states where it would also say what guns you have, <laughs> but those states are have their own problems. But for the most part, all it's going to say is that you have a permit to carry the concealed firearm uh, or a license to carry or whatever whatever that might be called in that state. And so those are potential counter arguments to obtaining a permit when you don't have to, right? The cost and the time, as well as, you know, potentially being on being on the grid. Yeah. No, that's, that's a fair point. Although, I mean, if someone's, uh, you know, the, the power of governmental uh, surveillance, do I say? Uh, the fact that you're probably listening to this podcast right now probably means they already know you, you have guns and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think so. the ship has probably sailed. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so, I, you know, I, I think we're kind of coming up on about an hour here, so probably ought to wrap it up, but uh, I can't think. I mean, there's probably more things we could talk about, uh, but I think we covered it pretty well. Um, so, again, about the constitutional thing, I do want to kind of reiterate, you you touched on it earlier, Jacob, towards the beginning of the episode. Uh, I remember when Idaho passed their constitutional carry law, and since that's my home home state, you know, where I grew up. I got a lot of family and friends there. And I had I had, a fr- I had somebody contacting me and saying, like, what do you think about this, Riley? And I'm like, I think it's awesome. But aren't you an instructor? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm like, but I believe in the right. And, and uh, that's not going to get in the way of me wanting to, uh, I guess, make more money as an – like, you're not going to get rich as a firearms instructor anyway. So – like whatever, but anyway, uh, he, he was really thinking or really focused on the idea that you know is, isn't this like a safety issue, like having untrained people carrying guns? And I was like, well, that's pretty much what your average criminal is, <laughs> you know, and they don't abide by the law. So, uh, but but to your point, you said earlier that there is no evidence suggesting that uh, that constitutional carry uh, results in. Uh, 
what was the, you used it you phrased it better than what i'm, what I'm trying to oh, talk there's there's no evidence arbitrary otherwise to suggest that people who have obtained no training to carry their concealed firearm are any less safe or less able to defend themselves than people who do and i know that that sounds like it goes in the face of then us turning around saying but you should obtain training but if if we're talking about some base minimum uh, ability to not be a danger to yourself or others, then we need to accept that there's just no evidence that these people in these states that don't obtain training are any less able to hit that minimum threshold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, even though I definitely think, you know, as I said earlier, training is is really important. But here's the thing. Most of your concealed carry permit type courses are not that kind of course. You know, and that people are going to come out of that suddenly vastly better shooters and vastly more safe than they were going, in, you know, going into it. And so, you know, we, we, we place way too much faith upon some of those classes and what they actually uh, give people, at least as far as their firearm handling. Now, one thing that I do think that is, and, and actually somebody commented this, and this is probably another point to uh, maybe a reason why. Uh, and that is getting at least some training or knowledge in your state laws, or at least in concealed carry or carrying of a firearm type laws. Uh, now, I caution you there because not all instructors are equal. And and here's the thing. We rely on a lot of firearms instructors to teach uh, students about those laws. Uh, but uh, I have heard some things that were just appalling. You know, that clearly certain individuals, certain instructors don't understand the laws as well as they should. And they have misconceptions and, and biases on some, some of those issues as well. And so, so take it all with a grain of salt. Do your own, own research, but it's not a bad place to start. And if you do some research ahead of time and make sure you get a good instructor, one that has excellent reviews and that other people have maybe, you know, left a review and said, hey, this guy clearly knows his stuff. He knows what he's talking about. He understands the laws, um, that sort of thing. Like that, that's probably, you know, that that's helpful to know, you know. So uh, I think that's probably another re excellent reason at least to possibly consider the idea of getting a uh, concealed carry permit where, one, you've got to go through some kind of concealed carry course where you maybe you get some, some help in understanding those laws and including – you know, you maybe you've just moved to a new state and you understand you understood Idaho law pretty well. In fact, honestly, Jacob, uh, here's something that a lot of people may not know, but the the way you and I first connected is I took your concealed carry course here in Colorado to get my Colorado permit. It's true. Yep, that's how you and I first became friends. Which is why I'm the boss, because you took the class with me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I remember kind of sitting there through that class and like a lot of the gun-related stuff and the safety stuff. I'm like, yep, yep, uh-huh, yep. It was just like, you know, I already know that. It's a good review, uh-huh, uh-huh. But what I got out of it was actually listening to you uh, uh, summarize uh, Colorado law and because of stuff I didn't really know, you know. So so that was that was a beneficial part for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad. I don't know why we forgot to put that on our little list of notes, but yeah, you know, in addition to just the value of training, generally speaking, uh, you know, <laughs> saying my state now laws allows constitutional carry. So I'm going to grab this gun, stick it in my pants and walk around with it and not bother taking a class is extremely irresponsible uh, to do so without some significant comprehensive training or education on the, on the firearm related laws in that state. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, so, again, today's episode made possible by your support of our sponsors and or us or products that we sell in our online store. Today, we have two of those products. And first is our online concealed carry course, which is it's perfect if you're planning on going and getting a non-resident Virginia permit. So that's pretty much why it's there. And a lot of people, you know, talk about the Virginia permit. In fact, there was a question earlier. Someone asked, you know, is that Virginia non-resident permit? Is that legit? Yeah, it's legit. It's it's a state issued Virginia permit to a non-resident. And the thing there is, is that their training requirements are not that stringent. So jump through any, and there's actually a number of ways you can get the the requisite training to apply for that permit. But our online concealed carry course makes it super easy and we guarantee you it's going to work because we've had, I don't know, probably hundreds or thousands people that have taken our online concealed carry training course and applied for that permit. Uh, reasonably priced. Again, check it out, concealedcarry.com forward slash online course. And then our secondary sponsor today, PigLube, concealedcarry.com forward slash PigLube. So with that, we're going to wrap it up here. Train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws the concealed carry podcast concealed carry inc concealedcarry.com and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm related incidents and laws but things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this we cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast